And that's the Smiths with the track The Hand That Rocks the Cradle from their 1983 debut album. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I like a special guest, and this week it is going to be the turn of Alien Sex Fiend, because I recently caught up with Mr. and Mrs. Fiend from the band. So, I've got that interview, which I've broken down into probably three or four easy-to-digest little segments, as long as, as, long, as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. Um, and also, yes, lots of information, because they've got a new album out, and also they had a box set that came out last year. So we'll be discussing all that and much, much more. But to get the show on the road, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is I Walk the Line. Rock time. 
Indeed, still sounded rock and roll to me. That was Alien Sex V in the track I Walked the Line that came out in 1986 on Flick Knife Records. And uh, if you're paying attention, and hopefully you were, um, this week's special guest is Alien Sex Fiend because I caught up with Mr. and Mrs. Fiend from the band a few weeks ago to find out about love, life and poetry and all that kind of stuff. Um, because they've got a new album out, Possessed, that came out, I think, in a, uh, last month. And also there was a box collection, Phenology, that came out, which was a 35-year-old trip through their fiendish history. So um, lots to look forward to. Anyway, I think before we have any part of that interview, we should play another track by the band. This is titled no, Dead and Reburied. Take it yeah. away. Makes me feel 
I was waiting. I knew it was going to be an abrupt end. That was Alien Sex being the track Dead and Reburied, and that came from their 1984 album Acid Bath. This is David Esau, the C86 show. A little bit later, I will um, give you the contact details if you so wish to uh, get in, get involved, get in, get in touch, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, enough of that, because um, a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Mr. and Mrs. Fiend from the band to find out all about um, yes everything and more and uh, this is going to be the first part of my interview Um, yes because I spoke to Nick and then Christine a bit later so anyway this is going to be with Nick first Um, when I talk we'll start talking about the new album that came out called Possessed and um, asked him if it had come together relatively easily or not anyway Nick take it away in some respects it came together as you say like easy and in the reality of uh, what was going on around us, we're having a lot of um, personal sort of bit going on in the background. So um, it came at a great cost in one respect. But yeah, I'm very excited, as you said. I'm, I feel very positive. I think we both do. Um, and we're relieved in another way because we lost uh, Doc, the guitarist, um, in 2016. So we'd recorded all this euphoric sort of stuff, and I was on a total high. Then I'd been in a car crash where my car was written off, and I was laid up. And Chris came in, and Doc had passed away with a telephone. So it's sort of light and dark, really. Wow. So a lot of a lot of terror, but a lot of beauty. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting because. Um... Uh, yeah, I did an interview with a member of um, The Men They Can Hang, which was probably quite a lot, a very different, but um, they, they've just released, yeah, sure. they, they've re- released an album recently, but he said it took quite a few years because halfway through the recording process, I think his brother got cancer, so they had to just literally oh. put, put it on hold, have the yeah. operation, the treatment, and when it came back again to, you know, to continue in the process, it was like, it was quite a different album because things had happened which... And it's and yes. and, and, yep. and and these things happen and and obviously, I'm not sure how old you are, but I won't ask that question. But you get to an age where you... I'm I'm 62. I don't mind. I've got no bones about it. 62. That's where I'm at. That's, yes. But what I didn't realise is one when you're young, where, where as you get older, you realise as things happen, your own health, dealing with your yeah. parents, dealing with your parents' health, and then friends and family, yeah. you know, who start sort of things start happening, which kind of puts a different light on, on the stuff. So obviously that, that also comes and trips us up, which didn't happen when we were in our 20s, did it really? No, I used to shrug it off and think, silly old git. Like, <laughs> I, I used to just think, I don't know, I was a bit of a dick really, I suppose, yes. um, to be honest with you. As I've got older, um, like... I'm quite glad to be where I'm at without being smug, comfy or otherwise. I still get petrified at points like any human being, but um, also there's loads of good things about it. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, you you reflect and and if you got yes, and very you, much. And also, you've done an amazing body of work as well. I mean, you're one of the. I mean, it's amazing because I've been doing this show for for a few years now, and I didn't realise there were quite so many bands from the eighties, which um, which is good. I mean, I just but I just had no idea, you know. I, I I sort of followed the music scene religiously with my, you know, John Peel, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. You know, I'd record this, you know, try and record um, a show, most of the shows, with my trusty TDK D90 cassette that I put in and then sort of play, you know, record 45 minutes. And, and obviously, you know, and you've probably heard this a million times before in interviews, um, that's where I came across Alien Sex Fiend when he did um, I Walk the Line and Maximum Security. And, and, and so obviously it was like, oh, this is very exciting music. So, wow. so, so he obviously was, was the man who helped elevate you to another lo- level or another audience. Oh, we, we absolutely, we, miss, we still miss John Peel, even um, Home Truths, the foibles of, you know, life sort of thing. Um, he was such a character. He really threw the rule book out. And I, as soon as I heard about him as a, a human being, I couldn't believe somebody was doing that. I think, really, it made me make my first record to join in. Yes, was it? seventy-seven. That was, you know. Wow, that that was a long way back. I know. Yeah, about forty odd years ago, as it turns out. I thought about it the other day and thought, "Oh my god!" Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, did it Poor take? Old sod, yeah. Yes, did it take a while? Because, because having done these shows for a, a long time now, um, most bands have this kind of five-year period where they, you know, they get together for a couple of years, make a bit of a sound, and then John, yeah. and John Peel would then play it, and that would give them that. Oh God, a stepping stone and, and a possible old John Peel session and the first album. So did it take a while for you to get your sound and band together? No, no I mean, when, when I've done all the original punk thing, that was mainly off my own back sort of thing. Um, I, I just really wanted to make records and I, knew, I was a window cleaner. I knew nothing about how to make records, what stereo was, etc. So I came into it as a fan I still am a fan of music. I'm still not worthy in a, a thousand instances of other people's music, which I think is brilliant. Um, John Peel definitely helped us because I think what, we we couldn't believe it. It was the most money we'd ever been paid. And we hadn't been paid a lot, I can tell you. <laughs> um, he put us in a session and I just, you know, I, I was, uh, I couldn't believe that we had the opportunity um, and then he put us back in there again and repeated and, you know, he was so supportive. Um, and that went to all the army bases out in Germany because we still had, um, East and West Germany were separated at that time. You had a corridor, which was a nightmare to go through. Yes. Um, but we had all the army turn up and there were soldiers from America, um, probably, oh, all from all over, um, so we were playing these massive gigs, and we we couldn't believe what was actually taking place ourselves. Yes, and were um, yeah. and were you aware? Because obviously, you know, that's the sort of post punk period, and and yeah, and and God knows what that really means post punk. But then, uh, yeah, likewise, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really. I still don't know what you know what we're doing. But I love what we're doing. Yes, that's I, it. Yeah. I, I love to use the term. It makes me sound kind of knowledgeable. But then, but obviously, you can't you can't hurt you can't help but use the G word really, is and that's the goth really, isn't it? So, yeah, and, sure. And, and were you? Kind of yes. Where does goth happen? When did it? When was when was the year, year zero of goth? You know, because there was bands like you know Susan the Banshees and the Cure. Of course, of course, and massive respect to them. I mean, Susie and the Banshees used to come all our early gigs. They were at, and I was just blown away that they actually give monkeys about anything we were doing. Same with Nick Cave. I mean, he used to laugh at me, and 
you know, I was into Alice Cooper, too. you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it was like mind blowing. So we were at the Batcave and, you know, we did, we did the uh, first gig and we come off stage and we we're in a little cubby old dressing room thing. And there's no noise at all. And I thought well, that'd be the only show that we'd ever get to do. And I'm not joking, it seemed like eternity. All of a sudden, there was loads of commotion. It sounds like there was a riot going on. And I said to Ross and Billy, who were working with us, uh, to roadie and really help us get the show on the road, well, what's going on out there? Can you have a look? So they went out and they said, they'll all go mad. You've got to go back. And I'm like, huh? And that, it ain't never stopped. Yes. Thank and... God, I don't know how. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, because the 80s, which we look back with a strange nostalgia, even though it was quite grim at the time, because a lot of bands who who formed, it was one thing that really kept them going, apart from the the special brew, um, was was also the, yes, unemployment benefit was incredibly important, and, and job yes. seekers allowance, and also for some people, they got on this kind of... Um, this other scheme which kind of allowed them to have money as a self-employed artist of some description, um, enterprise allowance or something like that anyway. And um, yeah. yes, and so did that also help you kind of exist as a band? Well, what, I mean, to be to be honest with you, David, what, what happened to me was I, I've been messing about, as I said to you, with music as a novice for then a number of years. And I don't think... I was always totally into it, and every penny I got, I'd spend either taking uh, my mates and that into the recording studio and just always keen to do something. And then I was delivering uh, TV sets for a job and video recorders, which were popular then about 1982, sort of 82, 83. And I got hijacked, and I thought I was going to die. I got bound and gagged and threatened to get set fire to um and beaten pretty badly as well where i was completely i just thought i'm dead like an episode of sweeney i was in it you know um i got cut out of the van and everything after and got interrogated then by the old bill because i had a leather jacket and long hair and i just found from that moment the fact i was still alive i was just going to immerse myself in doing what i want to do immaterial and money i used to live on boiled eggs like one boiled egg a day Steak and kidney pie between me and Mrs. Fiend on a Saturday, and half a gram of whiz would get me through the week because I wouldn't feel like I had to eat or anything. And I su survived on charity and good friendship, I think. Yeah. And love, love with Chris, obviously, like she's my life. Um, and the fact that we can do music together is like a blessing. So if I get it in other areas, that's sort of that's about fair, really. Yes, and has that and has that been that relationship? Has that been the difference between you surviving and being dead? Chris is everything to me. Yes, but has she yeah, managed to keep? Yeah. And has she managed to keep you alive? Though has she sort of sort of looked? Yeah, she you? has kept me alive. She's when I've been painting for two days without break any break. I, I have a fag and I've got a cup of tea on the go. The tea goes cold. The fag goes in the ashtray. I'm painting. I'm painting. I'm painting. If Mrs. F hadn't been there, just on that level, um, firstly to inspire me and say do bigger paintings and do you know help me and back me sort of thing. But then would go, oh okay, Nick, I made some grub because otherwise it'd just be a skeleton there. I, I would have just died probably merrily. 
um, but painting until I just sort of fell over. Indeed. The Life of an Artist. That's the first part of my interview with Nick Feen from Alien Sex Feen. I've still got quite a bit more of that interview to go, but um, I thought we should have another track by the band. And this is going to be um, Now I'm Feeling Zombified.
That's the track. And now I feel zombie vibe by Alien Sex Fiend. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. As long as they're positive. Otherwise, um, go and see a therapist. But you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show and I will be there. And it will be jolly and fun to hear from you. But anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Nick where we were talking about... Um, the 80s, and well, not just about the 80s, but the prolific um, output that the uh, band did um, from sort of 83 when they released Who's Been Sleeping in My Brain right through to the, well, I suppose, Another Planet in 88 and Curse in 1990. And this is where we were talking and well, I'd been asking him a bit about how he managed to sort of keep the band going for that amount of time so intensely and also to be able to release an album almost every year. And this was Nick's reply. Nick, what was your reply? Yeah, every second of every day, if we weren't doing our little magazine, The Fiend Team, with um, Mrs. F would be doing the uh, info sheets, um, we'd be making T-shirts. Um, yeah, that's all, all we've ever done, really. Uh, there have now been darker periods where financially maybe we've come back off tour and copped a, a bad sort of deal out of it. So it inadvertently put us off the road for two, three years. Um, and financially put us right back to bold eggs and uh, wing and a prayer. Yes. Um, but somehow we, we keep coming back from the dead. And how did you cope? I mean, that's the other thing that catches people out is the admin and publishing. Did you? Did you? Mm. Na- how did you navigate those waters with the band? Well, basically, we, as you say, we, we've been. 24-7 all the time. So we pay attention to that. And also, say we'd go to America to tour, 
and we were the top grossing independent band uh, back in 88, 89, 90 out there in the States, which is incredible. Me and Mrs. Fiend were funding that. We were putting the money behind that. So we'd be up to our ear rolls in debt. I mean, there weren't no wonder or nothing in them days. It, I don't quite know what would have happened if it had gone wrong. And thank God it didn't. Um, so we, we'd have like, you know, sometimes between 10 and 20,000 pounds or dollars before we played a note against our names. Yeah. So when we, when the dollar went down, devalued and we lost half the money that just instantly took us off the table because we, we didn't have any money. It was all, um, on paper. God, it suddenly makes you sort of look at the business side of the uh, newspapers more, doesn't it? Realising about the, the exchange, yes, how, how yes. important the exchange rate is in the world of rock and roll. Oh, which God. Is... <laughs> yes. Yeah, it went down to, we got 50p in the pound back. So £20,000 become ten grand minus tax. Um, and the FBI held up the payment because they thought it was a porno ring. Um, so, yeah, good times. <laughs> 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 it's all right telling it now. It's quite funny because, uh, you know, at the time it was not funny. It, it was very far from that. And and what happens is people that you think are your friends um, jump ship. Yes. Yeah. You know, so me and Mrs. F are looking at each other and like, okay. And we kept, we you know, we didn't stress. We knew there was a hole in the boat. We just kept rowing. Fantastic. This is this is the importance of being part of a team, isn't it, really? And good. Yeah. So did you did you get, you know, within did you have management as well as kind of the, the publishing sorted out? Was that only only up to um, Acid Bath. After Acid Bath, we um, asked to separate from the management and everything. Uh, we stayed friends and, and diplomatic and everything. But what, what I figured out was. You know, either we go on the dole and sit around rehearsing and thinking about doing stuff, or we just go for this. Um, and we went for it. We, you know, we'd book a van, we, we'd carry all the gear, uh, we'd be writing a new album, say Maximum Security, we'd get a gig in Croydon. That put food on the table, simple as that. Yes. And you worked with some fantastic producers during that time, didn't you? Oh, you, amazing. I'm you, still you not had, worthy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, but people like youth, you had... Oh, um, youth, mate, yeah, yeah. And then um, Kevin Armstrong, who went on to work with oh, people, with people yeah. like David Bowie and such like. So obviously, at that stage, you still you still had the kind... Well, this is the early years, obviously. But then, yeah, you know, obviously, you had, had that sort of ability to attract the very best to create the sound that you needed. I, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, the fact that you've worked with us, I, I'm a big Killing Joke fan, a big Bauhaus fan, etc. you know, totally. Um, the fact that he, when I gave him the first demo of Alien Sex Fiend, he listened to it and I saw him back at the Batcave and I, of course, naturally really keen and, hey, youth, you know, did you have a listen? He goes, um, you're effing mad, you are. Like, and I went, oh, okay. Uh, what? would you produce us? And he, he sort of laughed and that. It wasn't nasty, but it was, well, you know, I don't know where you're at, mate. Anyway, he came with Chris Needs and they ended up pissed and uh, they fell in the bass bins at Evan when we were playing a gig there. And you run back in the dressing room after the gig and went, the cross rhythms, man, uh, it, 
it's out. So I want to produce it. I'll produce you no matter what. Let, let's let's do something. So we goes in the studio with him, and I'm over the moon, and I, and I, it's like if you're a footballer, it's like you, you're training them with the first team. Yes. You know, so I'm I'm like you know, so he goes right, okay, uh, what we're going to do then, Nick? So I goes, well, we we got this new one. Um, ignore the ma- machine, and he goes, oh, but I thought we were doing with Charles the dog, sort of thing. I goes, well. We're, Hopefully we'll do that and all, but we're doing this new one. Ignore, and the rest is history. It's fantastic. Because when the and, other, sorry, after you. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry to butt in. Um, Kevin Armstrong, also a good friend of mine, right back with Demon Preacher, my first little punk band. He'd done lead guitar on my first little record that I put out that I'd borrowed the money to make, and um, he was such an accomplished player, singer. Uh, everything, drummer. Um, his stuff that he used to do on 8-track studios was out of sight. And I'm really pleased to hear you mention his name because he, he really is a talented uh, human being. And the fact that he, he came with us and then ended up, he brought Iggy down to our house and we we're there having a cup of tea and just playing music. And it's just been fantastic. And I'm so proud of what youth has gone on to do. And, and Kevin, I can't believe in the same sentence, we've, you know, been able to do what we have with them. And that's the second part of my interview with Nick Fien from Alien Sex Fien. I've still got quite a bit more to play of that, but I think we should have another track. This is also taken from their phenology um, collection that came out quite recently, a 35-year-old trip through fiendish history from 1982 right through to 2017 and it's a 3d 3d 3cd um, box set that features a lot of uh, material obviously and also some sort of rare and unreleased material as well and has a fantastic booklet so what not to like anyway this is carcass take it away
Indeed, more chart bone sounds. That is Alien Sex Fiend, the track Carcass. That is also on um, taken from their new album, Possessed, and that also does feature in their uh, triple CD package that came out uh, last year called um, Phenology, he says, looking down at his notes. Anyway, this is the uh, third part of my interview with Nick Fiend from the band, where I was talking about the dynamics of um, keeping... A musical combo together. And this was Nick's reply. Nick, take it away. Um, It's sort of, unfortunately, we are like mum and dad. I mean, what happens is um, everybody else wants to be in it naturally up to an extent. But then they've got like, you know, girl interest, alcohol interest, night out. Something's more important. And when when something else becomes more important, there is no point in being in Alien Sex Fiend because it's only one step away from living on a park bench. Yes, this is true. Which doesn't suit most people, whereas it it would suit me because, as I said to you before, no drama. But with some of the experiences I've had, a park bench would do fine because tomorrow's another day. It's it's good to be optimistic, isn't it? It's always good to be. You've got to. You've got to. <laughs> even even on the park bench, you can still look at the stars. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something else would occur, or maybe somebody would walk past who does play guitar or whatever, and you'd end up, oh, come back, have a cup of tea, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, I've always rolled with whatever. And what happened happened in the kind of the years when things weren't happening? Because there was a bit of a break, wasn't there, between Inferno and Nocturnal Emissions, and then there was another big break between that and Information Overload. And then an even yeah. bigger break with Death Trip. So what what were the kind of what was kind of what were you dealing with during those years? Um, well, I lost my dad. He, he ended up with dementia. Um, so that that would have been the one then up to information overload. So I've sort of done things at the controls where I've done a year's worth of work, and my dad was uh, deteriorating the whole time. And when I'd done the end of the project, I went into a black hole for three or four years where I just existed. I can't really explain, and I won't go too deep. Obviously, um, some psychological shit happened where I think I must have had a nervous breakdown or something. Um, You know, because we'd been rolling all those years anyway, with minor gaps here and there, which were generally due to, as I said, we were flat broke. Uh, people had walked out on us because it weren't it wasn't Led Zeppelin or Motley Crue or whatever they, they thought it might be. Um, so we were stuck with real life existing. Um, I went back to window cleaning at one stage just out of um, get my feet back on the ground and uh, and actually it was the most money I'd turned over in many a year. <laughs> yes. I know. Oh, yeah, Mrs. F's laughing, get me feet on the ground, window cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> you, cow. This is good. <laughs> that's, that's good, that brings you back to earth, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this is so true. So then, you know, kind of coming up to more recent times, <clears throat> were you thinking, look, this is time, we've got to get the Batmobile back together and get a new album? Oh, like- yeah. Yeah, we're always going to be Batman and Robin, um, like, you know, yeah, you know, we've got to save the world, haven't we? Yes. 
<laughs> and do you and do you still this is true actually there's i mean now the world has gone so bizarre you know we look back you know at the 80s i thought <sighs> we were a bit grim but now i look back and think they're quite sort of cozy but anyway yes yeah i david i i feel exactly the same <laughs> i i was a avid comic reader i've started to read bits and pieces again but because since leicester city won the premiership everything's gone awire um I, I keep thinking I am in cloud cuckoo land, and whereas 2000 AD, as you say, in the 80s, used to be humorous, it's now actually come to life. Yes, this isn't too much. Actually. So when, yeah. so bringing this album together, you're still on Cherry Red, so that relationship must be fantastic to have that consistency. It, we've done our own label, 13th Moon, for about 23 years. Uh, we, we split from Cherry Red back after Inferno, and... We then did, um, like, basically uh, just put out sort of, if you like, weirder stuff. I wanted to come off the road and sort of relearn or re-unlearn music again because I felt if we'd kept going, it would have been sort of stadium rock type, you know, plopping through it, which I, I just, as I don't know if I'm an artist, but as an artist type person, I wanted to break it all apart again and reevaluate. And I love music any rate, whether it's a drum or, or what, doesn't matter. I love music. I, I still haven't got a very great under, understanding sometimes of actually what I'm involved in other than loving something, love the sound of that or can you do that again or that sort of thing. Yeah. And do you and and what is the actual process that you start with? You know, when you create the new work, because obviously you're not you know with a load of mates just jamming in the studio, thinking that's a great no. lift. So how does what's the actual sort of mechanics of it coming together? It, it's a fluke sometimes because nothing will happen for a while, and then sometimes like um, sometimes you know sometimes I'll be out like well, quite a few times, four o'clock in the morning, that sort of thing, you know. And I'll have the radio going, TV going. I'll have a guitar going for a little little practice amp sort of thing into headphones. Um, something will come on the radio, a sound or, or something like that, or even sometimes a, a phrase or something could kick it off. Or I'll go and make a cup of tea out of frustration and the pipes are playing a tune to me and mixed in with a fridge... So the next thing, um, Mrs. F will come up with something and that may be reminiscent of some sort of squeaky thing or something or other which triggered the emotion. There is We don't stand round and go, right, OK, love, you know, give me a bass line, sort of one, two, three, and do our little karaoke thing. It, it's um, They come out of very peculiar situations. Could be a riff, could be a sound, could be a sample, could be words, could be a colour, could be... Um, because we like to listen to music also, you know, like when we're painting and doing artwork as well. Yes. Especially Can or Hawkwind or uh, stuff that's freer that floats off and you forget where you came in or Frank Zappa or Beefheart, where, you, you know, you, the next thing you're at the end of the record, you just put it on again and you just carry on on your little sort of journey. Merry way. So there, there is no set course. I mean, I've been inspired, am inspired, even by the old silk cut adverts, was purple. I came back and said to Chris, purple, purple, oh, wow, like movie purple. Um, something will occur from that. 
And that's Nick Fiend talking about the creative process. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. We've got lots more interview to go, but I think we should uh, break it up with another track from Alien Sex Fiend. This is titled Dance of the Dead. Dance Sex Fiend, very abrupt ending there, with Dance of the Dead. And this is going to be another part of the interview with Nick Fiend, where I asked him about um, what he learned, I suppose, what you would say to your 18-year-old self, or those kind of top top learning points, bullet points that you uh, probably wish you knew when you were sort of 18. Anyway, this was Nick's reply. Nick, take it away. I just think, um, expect the unexpected because sometimes that can be quite pleasurable. A um, bit like snakes and ladders. Sometimes you end up back on the first square, you know. That's 
tough titty, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you have to get on with it, as my old man would have said. Uh, you know, my dad never had no sympathy for nothing. You see, he had no shoes till he was 12. So you've got to understand also a bit of background of reality. I'm quite used to reality, you know. Um, I've got no problem with it. On the creative side, I, I never thought... I was told at school, basically, expect nothing from life, Nicholas. Um, you know, you should go in the army. Well, can you can you imagine me at 18 with, with you know, like a gun? Yeah, that's a frightening thing. I was quite an angry bloke as well, very confused, you know, like one thing or another. Um, so I just tell myself, expect the unexpected. That's first and foremost. And also, you can do it. Part of my problem after all that school, well, so-called schooling, where you're put down all, all the time, um, it's taken me years to shake that off. And also um, a lot of um, other people's interpretations of things, you know, without going too deep about it, because I don't want to be rude about people or, or things particularly, but listening to other people. And then it's taken me years through painting, like therapeutically, to get out of the mindset of negativity of you can't do something and it's only the province uh, province of the rich and uh, benefited people to be able to take part in this. So I felt there was a need for a window cleaner to come in amongst it and upset it, yes. you know, like punk, you know. So when Leiden opened his mouth, when Ian Drury, God bless them, opened their mouth, it freed me. And when I said to Leiden, can you help me? I'm from a council house as well. I'd, how'd you do it? Do what he goes, and we had a bit of a, a word. He called me uh, something or other, and I called him a something or other back. And then he said, oh, do you want a beer? So we had a beer, and then he tried to help me, and it all began. Yes. It's interesting how much class does shape and, and sort of put that mindset, because those kind of negative mantras or those def negative sayings have a huge impact. Yeah. And also yeah. being in the creative industries is probably not the best best thing, because <laughs> obviously, you know, it doesn't be, you know, beyond class. It means it's the one thing that people love to say, oh, that was rubbish or oh, that was not very good. And, and you think, oh, you, yeah, you know, and that's so demoralising because you might have spent year, you know, two, three years working on an album for some little jumped up critic or fan to say, oh, that was not very good. And you think, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? No, I don't find it so. I mean, what we've done is we actually used all the negative reviews of us, the ugliest thing in the name of music, etc. I used those as really proudly as well as captions for what we were doing. Um, I, I've never, I never take uh, negativity. It, it doesn't stop me. I've had negativity. All my old mates who were more punk rockers and, and rock sort of people, quite close mates and everything, when they first heard Alien Sex Friend, they said, are you joking, Nick? And I went, you what? And they goes, well, Chris's keyboard sound like a foggle. And I went, oh, brilliant, do they? <laughs> I, I just, I don't see the negativity in it. You know, um, yeah, we was doing a cover of Schools Out and she had this, massive foghorn sounding bass and I just thought well, that is bloody brilliant and Cooper, Cooper said to me you're the only band that sort of got it isn't it <laughs> and I went you what and he goes even the timing he goes you, yeah you get it don't you and I went I don't know do I and he yeah I think so <laughs> God, that's fantastic isn't it Can I, I can't believe that mate I was such a big Cooper fan when I lived up in uh, my mate's nans in Norfolk, my, my family had split up and everything. 
when I when I lived up in my mate's nans in Deerham, um, and my dad bought me a little record player, bless him, and I used to play Killer and all that sort of stuff, you know, uh, night in, night out, after working and everything on the building or doing electrics or whatever. And um, it was my escapism. It started me a draw, started me a dream, you know. And Led Zeppelin too done the same thing to me. I'm going to go around the world and find my girl and all that. You can never imagine that sat on a bed in a freezing cold bedroom at your mate's nan's. Who's, she was 80 and used to cook me sausage and chips every night, bless her. That is the last part of my interview with Nick Fiend. But I also caught up with Mrs Fiend. And this is um, that part of the interview that I had with her a few weeks ago. And this is where um, I was asking her about dealing with the music industry because obviously they've been working in that uh, interesting and sometimes murky world for the last, well, probably four decades. This was Mrs. Fiend, and this is her reply. Take it away. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. We're probably mental um, and should be locked up for our own good, really, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, well, one of the songs says it, actually, Get Into It. Uh, it album, 1986. Um, get Into It, uh, part of the lyrics, um, Gave Your Life To It. Yes. And I think that's what it is, is that, yeah, uh, the music industry, it's only started being called that fairly recent years, which could be the last 20, to be honest. But, you know, fairly recent years, they started calling that. It always used to be music business. Um, and, and I think part of the problem is this dilemma between artist and commercial. Yes. Yeah? I mean, because, okay, you're doing your art... But then, unless you sell that in some way, and that's when the business, the industry side comes in, um, where do you go? So you either do a day job, which some people do, um, the day job and keep music as a hobby, but you can't really, if you're going to do that, you can't really devote yourself to the music, which is what it requires. It requires complete obsessiveness. Everything goes out the window. Friends go out the window, family go out the window. I mean, some people we only see if we're working with them, you know? Yeah, well, because um, it's interesting, because having, yeah, spoke to quite a lot of people, it was kind of having two years claiming unemployment or job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance that gave them that 24-7 of being focused yeah, on the band. Ab- Whereas absolutely. I think a lot of bands now that try to have the job and a bit of a band in the background or in the evenings, it's like that doesn't quite ever, I hate the phrase, but it ever gives them that X factor. There's something that made it a little bit different than just a normal rock pub band which you know all just a pub band really isn't it so it's it's something that makes you think because it's what john peel would do he seemed to sift through thousands of records and give you the best reggae record or the best african music or the best indie or the best rock you know he you know he was this kind of amazing person that could sift through that and he, obviously he wanted to play something that was unusual and different rather than just saying well this is kind of nice but it's not you know this is more daytime radio this is more you know, John Peel evening. And that that's kind of quite a different thing, being able to devote yourself so much to the, the to the industry, or not the industry, the, the craft, shall I say. Yeah, I, well, going right back when we were first doing the Batcave gigs and stuff like that, um, I was actually the last person still working in the band. Everyone else had given up. Um, and uh, that was really difficult. So I, I was actually going into work, like the, not the day we recorded the RIP version for the Batcave album, Young Limbs, Numb Hymns, 
um, I then had to go back into work and pretend that I'd had a normal evening and gone to bed nice and early. I'd been in Trident Studios all night, man. <laughs> and the thing was, it's like, it's Trident. This is where Mark Bolan, Bowie, um, you know, all these, all these icons had recorded and we'd been there. And so even though I was absolutely knackered, which is good training for being on tour, um, it was just such a thrill to have experienced that. So it's, I think it's that kind of thing we've seen about the industry. It's that kind of thing that keeps you going. You get these real high points that you just can't. Same with being on stage or in the studio. Whoa. You can't, seriously, you can't do drugs that are going to beat it, really. Yes. Completely different thing to any other experience. And like you were saying about the industry side, um, yeah, I kind of feel sorry for new bands starting out. I don't know how they're going to manage it because things like the doll really did help. Um, that's what we did in the in the first, I'd say, about a year, and then it started getting dodgy, you know, <laughs> um, trying to sign on these gigs, and we had an American tour coming up, and it was basically, at that point, um, I remember the night before talking to Nick and saying, look, because we, we couldn't keep the house that we were all living in, on the guy wanted two grand rent it might as well he might sell a million quid because it didn't matter it was way out of our reach to keep the house so when we were actually on tour in the states in 84 that was our home we had no home um so that that was pretty you know disconcerting and that kind of thing just you know i don't think some people can get through it um the manager at the time said this will make or break you as a band um, and he wasn't far wrong, actually. Because well, it's, in, um, it's interesting, because having spoke to so many bands, it's sort of, you know, like, what happens, you know, what, what's the problem that kind of creates the end of the band? It's the second album or third album, but it's always America. It's like, oh, we did America, and that's when it all kind of really goes it wrong. It went tits up. <laughs> um, yeah, because it, it's really tough. I mean, the lack of sleep. Uh, I think one of the hardest ones we ever did was Scandinavia, and I think we averaged three hours kip a night. Um, it was weird, actually. I was talking to, well, not talking, but rapping with someone on Twitter, and um, he's based in Seattle. And I was like, oh, my God, I remember Seattle. So tired, I was trying to sleep on a guitar case in the dressing room. Yes. Um, and then, because we'd driven right across Canada, and we, this was days before the nice tour bus with beds, um, literally a minibus from Toronto right all the way through Canada, then down the west coast of America, you know, Seattle, um, L.A., all that lot, San Diego. Then across three days it took us to get from, um, we did a diversion into Las Vegas for a bit of fun. But we were then in a minibus for three days to mm. get to Minneapolis. And, I mean, even I had a beard by the end of it, I tell you. <laughs> uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't stop in motels to sleep. Because um, the, the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, not 70. So when people do tour schedules now, I'm like, I'm getting the map out, you know. <laughs> no, no, there's no... It's like two, two and a half thousand miles or something in three days. But again, you know, because you get through that. That's the stuff, if you're not that determined to get through that, you're not going to get through the next whatever it is or the next whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. that's why, you know, that kind of tour makes or breaks bands. Yes, well, absolutely. really. And I mean, I used to say anybody who'd been going for three years deserved respect. 
Yes. Then I changed it to five. <laughs> uh, now it we're looking twitching. at 35. How did that happen? And did you, during that time, because obviously there was a lot of bands coming along which kind of went into the same genre, did you ever feel part of a scene or did you just actually just think we were just too busy doing our own thing to really even look at any other bands who were similar to you? It was a bit, bit odd, to be honest. I mean, we were even a bit odd at the Batcave. Um, like Nick said, went from his background, you know, sort of window cleaner, working class, that kind of thing. Um, and we were a bit more punk based than a lot of the bands. We had that punk attitude. Um, I remember hearing someone talking about harmonic minor tenths in the studio once. And I thought, do you need to know this stuff on a guitar? Do you need to know this stuff to be in a band? Because I've got grade five piano. Um... Um, harmonic, and I'm trying to think, you know, back to when I was 15 and gave up the piano. Harmonic monitor. Oh, I don't care. And that was that was it. You know, it was like, I'm not analysing this. Um, I've had people trying to tell me, oh, if you do a drum beat at such and such a BPM, it's going to be like a hip-hop beat, and if you do it at this, it's going to be that. And it's like, stop giving me rules. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yes. So we were. we've always been a little bit... And to ourselves, I think, I mean, because we came out of the Batcave, I think that's how the goth tag started. But then there's loads of people who think we're not really goth because we've got a sense of humour. Um, and or, or it's not all doom and gloom. We do sort of some wacky stuff. I mean, even they've even been described as comedy tunes, <laughs> you know, like our Christmas single stuff the turkey you know fantastic uh, it was uh, such uh, so funny um so yeah we do we do sort of it's a it's a bit of a sense of humor in there as well and then you know one minute it's sort of punk but it's got synths um so it's not really punk and then the next minute it's sort of techno but not really because the vocals and the guitar on it so you, you kind of go in between genres really and that's what we like doing we like doing different things and kind of coming right up to your the the, the new album i mean did that i mean obviously as, as nick was saying you know things happen and and you don't really sort of um you never calculate well not calculate it but you never sort of even predict that someone's gonna gonna die on you um i mean obviously no. that's going to i mean that just makes everything kind of quite odd and a bit difficult to cope with at times I mean obviously you know you managed to do the album but did it sort of also feel quite a process because I was thinking you know having the two of you together must be absolutely invaluable just to sort of keep this this kind of creativity going yeah I think if you were a solo artist you've got no one to talk over things at the same level anyway you know they're either going to be you might have a great manager or a great personal assistant or something, but they're not like in the situ same situation as you. So even though they might be em empathic um, and understanding as best they can, they're not actually in that situation. So, yeah, definitely having the two of us to talk things over, how you feel or whatever, has been... Um, has been really useful, you know, right through right through from day one, really. Yes. Um, yeah, with, with Doc, I mean, obviously it was a massive blow. Um, got to say, though, things, things work out in weird ways. He was never what I'd call a strutty guitarist, you know, one of those people, right, walk in the studio, turns the marshal up to 11, 
you know, spinal tap job, deafens everybody, um, and uh, and then wants to do six tracks of guitar on something, and everyone is sort of sitting around twiddling their thumbs while they're doing extra tracks, you know. Yeah. That wasn't him. And yet, when we were recording the Possessed stuff, we didn't know it, that's what it was going to be. We literally went in the studio just, we're going to record and see how it goes, because the lineup had been working so well live for the, the previous few years, uh, all, the, all the shows that we've done. So Nick said, we've got to record this, we've just got to record it. Um, so it's just the four of us in the studio, me, Nick, Doc, and Matt, who does all sorts of different things, drum bits, guitar bits, electronic bits, engineering, he's really good at as well. So between the four of us, we could sort of do everything without involving anybody else. And yes. Doc, amazingly, had brought all these different guitars, and he's playing, you know, oh, I've got another idea for another track. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm just getting over a cold. <coughs> I've got a bit of a cough going. <laughs> so... He's, he's playing, like, I've, got, I've got another idea for a track. Yeah, hang on a minute, Doc. Let me just get this keyboard line down, mate. Look. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. And he's pacing around. So we're wondering if that was kind of out of character for him. So we're wondering if, weirdly, not that he knew, because I don't think it works like that, but that he had all this stuff in him and the fates or whoever, you, whatever, you, up, them upstairs, whoever you want to call it, kind of encouraged all that because they knew he was not going to be available to do yes. an extra lead bit. Oh, it would be great if we had an extra lead bit in this section, you know. Um, God. So, so it, it's weird how things work out. So, obviously, finishing the album was very important. It's like kind of Doc's legacy, um, in a way. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite an emotional journey, obviously, for us. Uh, took us a little while to get back to work on it after he passed away. Yes. But then we had the Fiendology project come up. You know, we were talking to uh, Cherry River Records and uh, Nick had mentioned an anthology and it said, oh, yeah, yeah, we talked about an anthology a while ago and then went, oh, my God, it's 35 years coming up. If we don't do it now, uh, <laughs> you know, we can't think about it for another five. Yes. And, and it was like, actually, this might be a really good idea to um, give us a little bit of a breathing space um, while well, we get the rest of, get ourselves together kind of thing, you know? Well, it's interesting because I sort of realised, I mean, 30 years or a bit more than 30 seems to be a period of time where suddenly something that can be kind of like quite disposed of and not taken seriously suddenly becomes really important because I noticed that this year there's been two books and various exhibitions on fanzines of the 80s and I was thinking, I'm sure no one cared at all, you know, for, for years, decades. They would have probably been chucking them in the recycling and suddenly it's like, oh no, 30 years has passed. We'll, we'll, we need to archive this and put it in a museum and people need to write <laughs> books about it. And I, I can see somehow the music the archiving of music as well has become that period where you just think well we just made music and that was all we did and you know it doesn't matter it was on a flexi disc it was on a single 12 inch you know some old recordings that we never released and suddenly it's like no no put it put it out and and archive it now because it's really important and I just wondered if it felt a little bit like that with you you know that period of putting this anthology together um, well, no, because I think most most of it has been out um, on albums of one sort or another, but they didn't have any, call it a best of, if you want to call it that, um, because they've all sold out. I mean, somebody was saying 
I think it was on Facebook the other day. Um, oh, God, not another compilation. And it's like, mate, they've all sold out. So if you're a new Fiend fan and you're coming along, oh, I'd like to buy something, whether that's from 1983 or 1992, there isn't a copy to be had. Yes. They've all gone. Um, same with, you know, 2001. There was a best of in 2001. They've all sold out. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's the way of the fiendology thing was a way of collecting uh, an overview, if you like, together of different tracks and some things that people may not have been aware of. I mean, we're not exactly a mainstream press material, so people wouldn't necessarily know that we'd done an album in 2010 or 2004. Um, oh, I didn't know they'd done one then. Oh, I must have missed that. <laughs> and um, so they're ca- they're catching up. Um, so there, there's that aspect. But as far as archive material is concerned, the thing is, I think you can't you can't go back and recapture those days. So if you've got an alternative mix, and we put a couple on Fiendology, one of I Walk the Line, and one of Now I'm Feeling Zombified that had been in our archives, you choose the single mix or the album mix or the alternative for the 7-inch and the 12-inch, whatever. And then other stuff is just put to one side because it wasn't the inverted commas the best. Yeah, OK. That's not to say it hasn't got qualities and certainly for staunch fans who would love everything, you know, I mean, even if you let a fart out at the end of a song, <laughs> they'd like to hear it. You know, oh, that was the one with the fart. Yes. I heard a cramps one the other night um, where he completely, Luck's interior, bless him, completely loses his rag. Uh, someone's walked into the studio while they're just recording. Um, oh, God, which oh, I can't remember the tune now. They're just about to start recording and someone's come into the recording studio and he, Lux has gone mental. What are you doing? He's home, walking to the studio, we're trying to record, and he's really shouting, and it's on this version. And it's hilarious, you know. This is true, <laughs> yes. And do you so find that... like that, you know, a, a kind of little, um, I don't know, a, a view into another aspect of a band, I think. That's, that's the idea of some of this archive material, I guess. Oh, yeah. And just lastly, I mean, do you find that you're, you've obviously sort of got fans that have been with you all the time? Have you, are you also finding people who are sort of also discovering you and you're thinking, but you're only 18, how come, you know? Oh, some of them weren't born. It was a Japanese <laughs> girl, I think, nine, I think she was born, in, yeah, she was born the year after um, the Japanese tour we did in 91. She was born in 1992. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. Yes, it's very strange. And people's kids as well yes. have got into it. You know, we've made special arrangements sometimes. They they want to bring the nine-year-old, so we have to put them on the guest list, that kind of stuff. Um, it? It's great. It's great. I think it's really cool. I think it's fantastic. It's really amazing. You get that at gigs now, though, you see. So when I was going to gigs, um, 14, I think, I started going to gigs. And, I mean, you didn't see anybody, loads of students, but you didn't see anybody, I'm going to say, over mid-20s. And, in fact, I used to do a paper round. And my, the, it was quite a young guy that used to run the news agents, and he used to go to gigs. And I was quite in shock because he had, like, a wife and a baby on the way. I was like, oh, blimey, because he seemed really ancient. <laughs> he was like, like, 28, I think. Yes. Um, but he was, like, the oldest person I knew that went to gigs. Now... Uh, one Alice, the Alice Cooper one we went to, Swindon, I think, a few years back, 
it was everybody from, I'm going to say four generations, because they were like real tiny little ones, you know, the mum and dad, the grandparents, you know? Yes, I know. A complete range of people. And I think that's, I think that's kind of cool. And then you get different sections of the audience responding to different songs. The older lot were all going for the, you know, killer stuff and all that. And then the next generation would be going for, I don't know, poison or whatever, you know. It was really, it was really funny. See, and we've seen that, different crowd, sections of the crowd go off on certain tracks. Yes, yeah. this is yeah, amazing. Yeah. Look, just and just last question: Are you doing any tours now, or is this? Have you got any plans at all? Why have I missed that one? We've been so full on. Once we decided that this album was going to happen, it's been absolute full steam ahead. I can't remember when I last had a day off. <laughs> no, I'm serious because they were panicking about getting the vinyl into the pressing plant because of the Christmas stuff, Christmas yeah. manufacturing. So this thing going, well, could you get the labels ready <laughs> ahead of schedule? Uh, uh, right, you know, because if we got those, they can get on with that, that actual pressing. Then it was, like, well, if you can get the artwork in as well, um, you know, we could we could pressurise them a bit more to get it done because there was a big danger it might be delayed till next year. Yes. Um, so it's just been absolutely mental artwork and you get getting proofs through and then it's press release time and... You know, oh, track listing for this, and is there any swearing on the album? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's only swearing on one track. Oh no, hang on, we've got two mixes that no, two tracks. Oh, hang on, there's a bit on the intro um, because people like I know Spotify and stuff need to know about all that. So, ah, uh, have we got copies of all the lyrics? Yeah, yeah. So it's been one thing after another, really, and we haven't had a lot of time to think about anything. No. But yes, the ultimate plan, the ultimate plan is to get back out playing live. Um, we'd probably try and do the UK first, because um, we've done masses in the UK. Uh, Germany, as always, a hot to trot, so is America. Um, and we'd love to get everywhere, and South America, actually. Yes. We'd love to get everywhere at once, but, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't clone ourselves. That would be handy. Oh, well, it sounds um, fantastic. And, and we've got to look at, obviously, getting a replacement guitarist, but... We have we have a plan there. Um, it's just we haven't been we've dipped a toe in the water, so to speak. But uh, we haven't had a chance to really concentrate on that side. Playing live is is a different ball game to recording. Um, we improvise a lot live, so you get sort of a live. I call them live twelve inch mixes, alternate mixes of the of the songs. We don't play the songs uh, verbatim, note for note. Yes. Uh, Nick likes to involve the audience and he goes with, he can sort of go with the flow with them. So you need to, it's almost like reinvent the songs each night. So you have to have a, a familiarity where you don't even, you don't even think about what you're doing. It's like, I know where that's, I know what's needed now. And, uh, and your hands on it, and psh, off it goes. I press a lot of buttons, you see. <laughs> yes, what well, is good. This it is, is all live. It's all analogue stuff that I use still. Um, so it's not all on computer, which would make life a lot easier, but I think probably less fun. Um, <laughs> and if the computer goes, I've seen it happen, computer goes down, the band can't do anything. Yes. Ooh, at don't... least, you know, if I'm left with one, one drum machine, I can do something, one keyboard, I could do something. Even the echo unit, 
I could, I could, I could amuse you for a while with just an echo unit. Yes, yes. No, it's a wise choice. I'm, I'm myself, to be honest. Excellent. And that's the end of my interview. A big thank you to Nick Fien and also Mrs Fien for that time, um, for giving me uh, for that interview. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. This is the C86 show, like I said at the beginning or somewhere during the show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there and uh, keep it positive and groovy because otherwise it's just unpleasant. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with another, another track by the band who have got um, a new album out. So do check that out and various compilations as well. So um, what not to like? This is going to be Haunted House. Yeah.